I hope that by the end of this episode on the AI and Industry Podcast, you'll be able to not only hire better data scientists who'll be a fit for your business problems and build better data science teams, but also pick the AI applications and use cases that you should bring into your business versus those that you shouldn't. Um, I spend a lot of my time being sort of the business voice who talks to the technical people and then communicates that bridge across to the other business folks of the world uh, who are interested in artificial intelligence. And in this episode, I kind of grab somebody from the other side of the pond, someone with a formal master's degree level focus on machine learning who applies these technical skills in business and has been forced to learn how to speak business and understand business. This episode, we interview Brooke Wenig, who is the machine learning practice lead at a company called Databricks. Uh, Databricks was founded by the folks who created Apache Spark. Those of you who are technically savvy with AI will be familiar with Apache Spark as an open source language for, for artificial intelligence and kind of distributed computing. Brooke works with a lot of companies with Databricks. Databricks is now close to 700 folks, so big firm, and helps sort of implement uh, these applications into oftentimes large enterprise environments. And Brooke speaks with us this week about what to look for in an actual data scientist, how to find data science folks with the right skills to be able to communicate to business people, not just to work with models. So what are we actually looking for here? What should people be capable of? How should they be capable of thinking? Hopefully some of you will have better interview questions by the end of this podcast. And in addition, we asked Brooke about what is the value of kind of covering the cutting edge applications uh, of AI, looking at what's working in industry. How does that help us in our own business make better decisions? And it's not just opening up our minds to more possibilities of AI, there's also concerns about how we can make better decisions about what kind of AI projects to adopt. So not just seeing new shiny things, but actually making smarter calls. Brooke has a pretty educated perspective in this take, having seen the inside of a lot of different businesses, and I thought she brought some good insights to bear. This episode is brought to you by Databricks. Databricks is hosting their annual San Francisco Spark Summit from April 3rd to 25th, which is sort of a whole event intended to bring technical folks and business leaders together with what the cutting edge applications are of artificial intelligence today uh, and how to leverage technologies to bring them to life. We'll have more information about that event on the actual episode here. If you find this episode with Brooke on emerj.com, you'll see the info there. You can just Google Spark Summit and check it out. So without further ado, this is Brooke Winning with Databricks. I'm Daniel Fagella here with you on AI and Industry. And without further ado, let's roll right in. So Brooke, I want to start things off just with the way that you've articulated what a data scientist is. And, and you kind of frame it very overtly as sort of this cross-functional role when a lot of people see it as more of a technical role. How do you like to conceptualize and explain what a data scientist is when you're speaking to the enterprise? A data scientist is someone who has business level domain of what the data is, can build predictive models on it, and can communicate the models and the importance of those models to business leaders to ultimately drive decisions for that company. And it very much is a cross-functional role and a very interdisciplinary role. It involves skills in both engineering, math and statistics, as well as communication. Yeah. See, I, I think, well, first and foremost, I don't even know. It, it almost sounds like you have that written on an index card somewhere. That was like just really straightforward there. But I like it. Very succinct. I think a lot of people don't understand that communications is so important. So they have to understand the data. They have to be able to build models on it. What do you mean when you say communication? Some people are building data science teams now, or they're thinking about the existing skill set and saying, okay, you know, do the current people we call data scientists, are they what we actually need? When you say these folks need communication skills, 
put some color on that, I guess, what that looks like. Yeah, so I'd say the first step is getting buy-in from the business leaders. For example, I know a lot of companies struggle to even get data science teams because they don't understand the importance of data science. And so once they've got buy-in, now they need to make models that will actually drive business decisions. There's no point in me spending hours every day mucking around with scikit-learn and Keras to build models that nobody's actually going to use at the end of the day. And so that's why communication is so important. So their work can be adopted by the rest of the company. Another aspect why communication is very important is to work with other teams and understand what the data even means. If a data scientist doesn't understand their data, they're not going to make a model that is best fitted for that data. Yeah. And in terms of an, you know, anecdotal examples of that, I would presume that if we're looking at something like, I don't know, maybe, maybe it has to do with inventory levels. If we're reading that data and you know, trying to maybe you know, predict when we're going to need I don't know, however many folks in the warehouse at once using forklifts or, you know, like staff demands or when we're going to need a restocking of certain products, being able to predict that somehow. If if someone only looks at the data as data, I presume that a lot of errors could come up because I would guess that there's going to be instances where some inventory item is marked wrong. And if we look at it, we would know, okay, we never carry more than, you know, 30 of this gigantic you know, let's say we, we sell like, like piping and like metal, you know, metal and concrete kind of piping related stuff. I'm just coming up with something random. You know, we never carry more than 20 of, of this particular kind of giant, you know, metal item in inventory, number one, because of how rarely they're sold. Number two, because of how, you know, heavy and space consuming they are and all that stuff. And we have here an instance of 200. Like, I, I don't even know if I can trust this whole column. I'm going to need to talk to somebody and figure out what might be clean because I'm not going to train a model to predict on this data that's that's messed up and that we need to have kind of the business intuition of what are the normal flows of inventory? What are the normal cadences? What do these inventory items actually mean? So that when I look at the data, it's not just a spreadsheet. It's something I can go talk to the business people and say, hey, can we validate this? Can we make sure this reflects reality, which is what we're really looking to do? Is that, is that an accurate way of framing it, Brooke? Yeah, I would say so. But the first question I'd ask before I even start looking at the data is what is the business problem you're trying to solve? Is it demand forecasting? Is it resource forecasting? And then when we talk about the problem we're trying to solve, can machine learning even solve it? Or could you simply solve that problem with better technology? Yep. Yep. And so as part of that, I would the very first thing I do when I start machine learning problems is understand what is a baseline metric. For example, if I always predict the average, what would be my accuracy in the case of fraud detection? Or what would be my precision or my recall? So establishing what is success is the most important thing. Then after we can establish success, then we can start looking at the data and see those kind of constraints in play. For example, we never have more than 200 of this. Hey, what are these null values doing here? Sometimes they could be corrupted data, but sometimes they could be an indicator of the thing you're trying to predict at the end. Yeah. And, and you're, again, bringing up sort of the beginning with the end in mind sort of objectives. And one thing that I think our audience has been battered with over the head many, many times by myself and our guests is sort of asking the question, is there a simpler way to solve this? In other words, we may not need you know, to write a line of Python to solve problem X. If there is something that can get the job done, either because it's astronomically cheaper or it's literally potentially better than what we could do for machine learning, like can we do that? These sound to me, Brooke, like questions that in an ideal world, a data scientist could ask. I think people presume, well, the people I hire for data science, they're going to know how to build models. But based on our convo here, you know, criteria for what a good data scientist is might be someone who can ask what is the business problem, someone who can be frank and straight about, hey, this is not something that we want to try to apply machine learning to for reason X, Y, or Z, and I think we want to focus elsewhere. 
you know, should these be things that potentially folks should be hiring for or looking to build as capabilities with their data scientists, not just the, the business function leads? Yeah, definitely. Data science and machine learning shouldn't just be a hammer they hit over the head and apply it to every problem. For sometimes it can actually be upgrade your technology as opposed to trying to predict the failure rate. If you upgrade the technology, then you have zero or 1% failure rate, whatever the application may be. Yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so yeah, hopefully in an ideal world, again, we have data scientists that can, as you had mentioned, begin with the end in mind really master kind of the context and the data itself and be able to interface with the different people there and then also be able to be very frank about whether or not we want to swing this hammer at this darn problem. And I, I think that hopefully for the data science folks tuned in, this makes sense and, and is encouraged and, and hopefully for the business people, maybe this is something you'd look out for if you're going to be hiring and bringing on teams. I see this as such a common part of you know companies that sell into the enterprise. Obviously, with, with Databricks, you, know, you folks are, are selling to bigger firms, and they have folks like yourself that work with the actual clients on kind of an educational slash consulting side of things. I see almost any company that sells into the enterprise and has even a lick of integration consideration, not just selling product, but really having huge arms of the company devoted to educating the potential buyer, working with them in terms of crafting a project, even sometimes helping them hire team members that they need to finish that product or that project uh, with the particular vendor. And it seems to me like those branches of vendor companies exist because they understand that the lingo transfer and the culture transfer and the understanding of, of AI is almost as much of what has to be imparted as the technology needs to be sort of handed off and integrated. What is your take on that? In other words, why do you think that we see so much of that hands-on educational stuff? Is there more detail than what I kind of guessed at there? Yeah, so I think it very much depends on the company. Databricks is built on a very technical concept, which is Apache Spark, and it isn't a technology that many people are familiar to uh, when they're in school. For example, I went to UCLA and I had only had one class taught using Apache Spark. And that's because my advisor had helped create MLlib, which is the machine learning library for Spark back when he was a postdoc at the AMP lab at UC Berkeley. And so with these new technologies, it's very hard to get people that are fresh out of school learning them. And so when people are already in industry, they're a lot more hesitant to adopt these new technologies because they didn't learn them in school. They're unfamiliar. They can have a very high learning curve. And so that's why with these vendor companies, they have to come in and provide resources, not just for training, but for also consulting and implementation, as well as educating the team members, what is this technology and when and where you should use it. Spark is fantastic, but it shouldn't be used everywhere. Yeah. And again, the whole hammer, you know, looking for a nail kind of thing. And do you suspect, and, and I'm going to get into sort of the value of staying on the cutting edge in terms of what's working in industry, speaking of where the hammer should be used. Do you suspect that, let's say, five years from now, the vendor companies that sell AI into the enterprise are going to need any less of this very educational, very help you build a team, help you think about data, help you with your data infrastructure, help consult on you know, revamping your processes here and, and being okay with iteration. It's not a waste of time. It's an investment. Um, do you think that sort of these very hands-on wings of vendor companies are going to shrink in the next five years as more of these companies are familiar with the lingo, have data scientists on board, etc.? Or do you think this is going to be a much longer slog to make AI be any easier of a handoff than it is today? I actually think it will increase rather than decrease. Go ahead, yeah. Throughout the U.S., there's a huge shortage of qualified data scientists. And so 
because of that and the fact that a lot of companies aren't making the most out of data-driven decisions, those two paired together, I think, will drive a lot more need, actually, for the help from vendor companies to help educate them on what is an AI and what is ML. A lot of it is hype. And so understanding what can actually be done to solve the business problem versus what is hype, I think, is very important. 100%. In fact, those of you tuned in right now might be aware that that is indeed the purpose of this show and of Emerge.com. And and uh, I think that, yeah, as you had mentioned, it sounds like your supposition is the demand is there and it's unfulfilled. When people fill the roles, there's going to be an ask for much more hands-on and that that's going to continue and vamp up as opposed to companies kind of getting used to the lingo and they don't need to be explained what is data. They don't need to be explained how does machine learning work anymore, how to build an ML team, let's say for risk or something. You know, some people might think, okay, well, that'll, that'll fade away the need for hands-on. What you're saying is there's such a dearth of that talent in the first place, it, it's going to get absorbed into whatever will absorb it, and vendors are going to be a big part of that. So it sounds like you, you still feel like the vendor process five years from now will be very, very hands-on heavy. Definitely. And a lot of companies that are experts in ML and AI, they will make mistakes. For example, Google Photos a few years ago, uh, they came up with this new image yeah, classification. Yeah. Yeah. That's tough. Was that, was that the gorilla thing? That was the gorilla thing. Yeah. Yep. Um, they didn't have a diverse team building it. And so when they were trying to predict categories of images and they passed it a gorilla, it predicted it as a black person. And so there are lots of examples where people make poor data-driven decisions or don't fully test their solutions. And so that's why I think it's important that there are even more data scientists that can help verify these things and provide more domain expertise. Yeah, and that's that's like one very overt kind of really bad PR, you know, social justice example. But there, there's obviously a lot of other examples that have no social justice implications but will make you go broke or give you a lawsuit. So. It's admittedly more than the stuff that you know TechCrunch gets to rant and rave about, but of course, yeah, there's a million of those openings and gaps, and, and I think we'll see more of those stumbles maybe as we see more implementations. Hopefully, hopefully, you know, not not that horrendous, but is what it is. Last question I want to bounce off you, Brooke, before we wrap up on time here is sort of the value of staying abreast of what's working in industry when. When people are marshalling a technical team, you know, a business lead is marshalling a technical team or, or a technical person who understands the business problem is, is going out and learning sort of and upgrading their own skills. Why is it important to know kind of what's working now in industry? What do you see as kind of the primary value there? Yeah, so I think it's very important to stay on the cutting edge of what's happening in industry and to some extent research. The reason why I say industry is because there are tons of new open source projects out there. You can find them on GitHub, but if they have very few active developers and that project might not be maintained and then you rely on something that's no longer going to be actively developed. And so I think it's very important to stay current with what's happening in industry. So if you're competing for the same space, for example, with online retail, if your model is 10% better, that could translate into millions or billions of additional dollars of revenue. And so understanding what is out there and understanding the trade-offs of what happens if I switch to using this new approach. Do I spend two years of dev time or is that two weeks of dev time? So the investment effort, both in terms of human hours and in terms of cost are very important. At Databricks, we used an open source platform called Horovode, which Uber had open sourced because Uber was using Horovode in production for distributed training of their deep learning models. And we wanted to use a framework that was already known and tested by one very reputable company. Got it. So you absorbed it because you realized that it was available and you, you were able to look at the trade-offs as you had said, okay, well, what's it going to take for us to run our models in this environment or with this method? 
you know, versus the way that we're doing it now? What are the pros? What are the cons? And it sounds like there was enough information out there about what does it realistically take to adopt this for you guys to build the confidence to move to it, which maybe ended up being the, the better move. Yeah. So for us, we created a product out of it called Horovode Runner, which allows you to run Horovode on top of Apache Spark clusters. Oh, you guys just love productizing open source stuff. I, f- I forget that, <laughs> that, that is that is the brunt of the business here after all. But that's cool. Okay, got it. So uh, you guys absorbed it in that sense. Part of your, your normal uh, rigmarole there at, at Databricks. Obviously, you guys have been good at it. So, okay. So part of it, I'm just going to try to digest and, and maybe um, distill the real deepest points that, that maybe you'd articulated here in answering the question. It sounds like understanding what other solutions are out there is part of it. So kind of broadening the possibility space in your mind of how could we solve these different problems. But then the other part of it is understanding realistically what it's going to take to bring them to bear. What were the team requirements? What were the resource requirements? What were the infrastructure requirements? And maybe if you're covering, if if you're understanding what's on the cutting edge of industry, you can watch a bunch of other people have wins and make mistakes that might have only been a month or so ago, but it's enough data for you to jump, move, and you know, transition to something that's a better strategy for, for your company. So it's a combination of seeing more, but being able to know how to make the decision. It sounds like it really is both that's the value for kind of covering the cutting edge. Yeah, definitely. The other thing that I would add to that is understanding the data that these different companies have applied those models to. For example, if you're trying to do some NLP problem and your textual language is very different than the model is trained on. For example, the model is trained on Twitter data, which has a character limit, I think, of 140 characters. Yeah. You can't directly take that model and apply it to your Amazon reviews data set, for example, which might have a much longer character description length for a review. Yep. Yeah. So understanding the transferability of these things. And my guess is, uh, Brooke, if if you want to understand that transferability, probably the people who should be looking at these new algorithms, new approaches, new use cases should be, you know, either, you know, the unicorn person that can do both or probably uh, maybe a data science and a kind of purely business functional person because it sounds like both people might be able to find a reason why this doesn't transfer to us, right? The the business person might know that this inventory process or this method of tracking or this timing of tracking really doesn't line up well to what we do. And so I don't know if we could use it in our warehouses and here's why. And the technical person might have a technical reason why our data doesn't fit or our infrastructure won't work with this, or we don't have the compute to do anything close to this right now. It it sounds like you might need both people in the room to give things kind of thumbs up and thumbs down and figure out what to adopt and adapt. Yeah, definitely. And as a data scientist, I'm often paired up with a data engineer when we start a project with the customer. For example, they'll help do the data preparation, I'll build the model, and then together we work on the deployment considerations. Because as you had said, do we have the compute resources needed? Does this need to work in a streaming environment or batch pre-processing? And so having all of the different personas in the room can help you make a decision much better than if you have a single person working on that project, and then they spend six months on it, realizing at the end, the solution is not suitable for the deployment considerations. Yeah, yeah, not ideal. Uh, So really having both of those sets of eyeballs, and I think for the people tuned in, this might be a really good take-home lesson from Brooke here, is in looking at these kind of solutions, number one, you know, covering the cutting edge opens the eyes to more possibilities, also helps people make better judgment calls and decisions about what to do, but we're going to need both of those skill sets. We need to know the business, and we need to know the technical aspect of data science. But if we bring those things together, we can actually make good calls about where to fruitfully use these technologies. I guess, Brooke, maybe where to use the hammer productively. Exactly. Yep. Cool. And of course, that, that is the, the intended objective of uh, the Spark Summit. 
Databricks is the ones that's kind enough to, to bring this episode to us. And there's going to be more information about the Spark Summit itself actually on this podcast episode once it is up and live. Brooke, that is all that we have for time. We are right on time, but this was an excellent interview. And thank you so much for joining us here on AI and Industry. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of AI and Industry. This is your host, Dan Fagella. I hope that we catch you next week. Many of our executive listeners often get great ideas from our podcasts or our newsletters, but they end up coming to us for more help. So they might see some research project that we did with the World Bank, and they might want to do some of their own research on deeper market opportunities for AI in a specific sector or understanding the growth rates of AI in a certain domain. Uh, They might have seen some AI business strategy work that we've done with a pharmaceutical company and maybe ask about things along those lines or see one of the presentations that we've given at the United Nations and ask if we can speak at an event. Uh, And while we certainly do these things, uh, we're certainly involved with clients on pretty big projects on a regular basis, a lot of the time these messages will just end up in my personal inbox. People will find my email or they'll just find me on LinkedIn and send along a message And this ends up being actually pretty tough to juggle at this point, given the travel schedule and given all the the client projects that we're involved in. And few people actually know, particularly people who only listen to the podcast and and aren't on Emerge.com or on the newsletter, uh, don't know that we actually have a services page that lists what we can help with. So we are not the best at everything, but in terms of what we do, which is mapping the capability space of AI and conveying that to executives in ways that help them win in the market, specific services tailored to that can be found at emerj.com slash services. So here at Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research, we work with government departments, we work with public companies, uh, we work with organizations who are serious about making AI a competitive advantage. And again, we actually do list sort of the programs that we have. So many of the podcast listeners don't know this. These messages end up in my inbox and then I'm you know, traveling for two weeks and I feel really bad that I get back to people later, but you can reach us through that services page or simply send along an email at services at emerj.com, services at emerj.com. From there, Dylan or Marcus or one of our team members will be able to get back to you much more quickly uh, than I would via LinkedIn. So if you're interested in doing more with what you've learned here, if you have serious business initiatives related to artificial intelligence and you want to take your organization to the next level, just simply reach us at emerge.com slash services. That's emerj.com slash services. Or just email services at emerge.com. That's emerge with a J. So thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode. Next week, again, we're going to be diving into AI use cases and trends and conveying the transferable lessons that you can bring to your organization. And I look forward to having you here next week.